The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. No computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my special guest today is radio public affairs host Marie Stone, who is the co-host of KUCI's weekly interview show, Writers on Writing, which broadcasts every Wednesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. She has been interviewing literary figures on KUCI since 2007, so 13-plus years, and has interviewed over 500 writers, poets, and literary agents. Wow. There's a lot to talk about, so let's just get into it. Welcome, Marie Stone. How are you today? Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm going strong. You know, we're we're 10 months into the pandemic, and I've kind of got it down. I've perfected isolation. I'd be the best person on house arrest. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> well, well, excellent. What, you know, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of everything that you do, why don't you give us a sense of where you came from? Like, where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid? God, I was a weird kid, and anybody around me would have told you I was kind of a weird kid. I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington, which I don't admit to too many people. Walla Walla is on the southeastern side of Washington State, and so it really has kind of a Midwestern feel. I mean, it feels a little bit more agricultural. The weather is more extreme than Seattle, so it's got this very farmer, you know, uh, (laughs) right-wing Strap, strap yourself up by your bootstrings kind of uh, mentality. And my dad was a pilot and my mom was a flight attendant. They, as a hobby, owned this wrecking yard. He was really into old cars and restoring junker cars. So he bought this yeah. wrecking yard. And it was at the base of the Washington State Penitentiary, which is back then was kind of a, a nasty penitentiary to be sent to if you had the misfortune of having to go. So he employed a lot of ex-cons, a lot of guys out on parole, kind of a lot of, you know, a hard-boiled, nasty bunch of employees. And it was the 70s, and my parents just kind of let me out there with these guys and, you know, go play. And (laughs) who we were playing with was kind of just, you know, kind of some, some, I mean, they were in for some, you know, serious crimes. So I don't know how much that shaped me or how much, but it, I do a little fiction writing on my own and that 
plays a big role. I'm always returning to those wrecking yards. Uh, you know, I think most people that haven't been to a wrecking yard really, you know, you kind of have, well, I guess I've seen it on TV. A couple of years ago, I went with my son to an auto wrecking yard, and it's amazingly dirty, and there's just this sense of, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's not yeah, someplace yeah. you go to every, if it's not in your normal sense of thing, it's it's a unique experience. It was a towing company, too. So a lot of these cars, you know, had been in some really serious right. accidents. And my, right. my right. mom used those cars as an early childhood education on the, the dangers of drinking and driving, the dangers yeah. of driving without too much sleep. And she'd used these cars as a visual aid yeah. of why yeah. you wouldn't want to do this. You know, for an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old, it was very scarring. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. So I kind of had a dark sensibility, and, I, you know, I don't know how much a role the wrecking yard played in that versus how much I just came out that way. But, yeah, gotcha. as a kid, I was really into anatomy and physiology, and I wanted to be a doctor, and I dissect stuff. I don't know. I was just kind of a weird kid. I, I got a hold of this biological supply company catalog when I was a little kid and would order fetal pigs and frogs and mice and wow. all this stuff on our dining room table. And wow. you know, it was just a weird, I was a weird kid. I was a weird kid. Yes, it's amazing that you didn't turn out to be a doctor doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> I could not pass math and science were my downfall, which actually plays a role in becoming a doctor. So I could so I went to law school instead. But um, yeah. I, Did you go through high school in Walla Walla? No. So my parents split up my freshman year of high school and we moved mm. to Seattle. So I mm. spent my high school years in Seattle and then came to California in 89 to go to college and never where'd looked back to Washington after that. Where'd you go to college? I went to Occidental, which is a tiny liberal arts college in LA in the Eagle Rock, Pasadena area and majored in philosophy of all things. When you graduate with a major in philosophy, you can get exactly zero jobs. And uh, <laughs> I didn't go straight to law school. I took a couple of years off. I think I was a little drunk the morning of the LSAT in college, so that delayed my law school aspirations a little while. So I took a job at Smith Barney, which is this, you know, financial institution, right. As and refer back to my notes about having no ability in math whatsoever. So I was absolutely unqualified, but the boss had been an Occidental grad and was only hiring Oxy grads. So I got this job and I was absolutely uninterested and, but hungry. So I needed the work. Yeah. So. Right. so I did that for a couple of years and figured I just got to get out of here. I hate it. It was so sexist. It was so, you know, old boy financial world. So I made it two years. Then I applied to law school and jumped ship. So. Well, it does take some chutzpah to be able to do that. I mean, you, you held your own for a couple of years and you you actually got hired <laughs> with no background. <laughs> no credentials in with that. no back. Well, it was kind of worse than that because um, <laughs> because I had that on my resume when I went to law school. That was the big job experience on my resume. So when it came time to look for a position as an attorney, my qualifications were in the financial field. So the job that I got that I kind of had to take because it was the only big firm job I was offered was as a corporate lawyer. So I went from 
that to work on mergers and acquisitions and IPOs also. Oh, my God. And, that uh, is no easy road. That's amazing. Where did you go to law school? Loyola in L.A. Oh, okay. Once I came to California, I, I couldn't tear myself away from Southern California. So I went to, yeah, I went to Loyola. So how long did you practice law? Only three years. So I met my husband at the firm, and he's got a little age gap on me. So he had been a partner for years and had left the partnership to do legal technology when we met. We got married, gosh, my first or second year of practicing. And then we decided, because he was older, he really wanted kids. And so we decided to have our daughter at the same time, the firm really bet big on the dot-com bubble. And when that bubble burst in the early 2000s, the firm went under and they were offering buyouts to attorneys. And the timing was just perfect. Our daughter had just been born. <laughs> I hated corporate law. <laughs> I had a husband who could support us. <laughs> so, I, so I jumped right. ship and no regrets. Can you say the name of the firm? Would we recognize the name? Yeah, of the it was firm? called Robex, Flager and Harrison. And they were a San Francisco firm, and they were an old firm. I mean, they had been, gosh, a hundred and I think it was like a, I'd have to do my research, but I think it was like a hundred and twenty-year-old firm. So for it to go under, and it was a big firm, was pretty shocking. It was a pretty big surprise. I think they finally closed their doors in two thousand three or four. Mm. So wow, yeah, interesting. It was, it was a shame. So when did writing take hold? You know, it's funny. I was always really into writing, even as a kid. On on the side of dissecting frogs and pigs, I was also really into fiction. And I think my grandfather really got me started in that. I mean, he was such a big storyteller, and he really encouraged me to write a story a day and practice my cursive as a little kid. And if I could practice my cursive, he'd get me a library card, and that was a huge deal. So I was writing stories as a little kid. In fact, I think I was in third grade and I won this little writing competition and the prize was to drive a couple hundred miles to Pasco, Washington and meet Shel Silverstein, which was a huge deal. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Writing I loved all the way through, but I never thought, you know, you could make a living doing it. I still don't, you know, it's still pretty hard to make a living at it. You know, I never thought it would be something to pursue as a career. I just thought it was really fun to do. In fact, right before I took the job at Smith Barney, (laughs) I moved into my grandparents' senior citizen mobile home park in Simi Valley because I was super poor. And they were summering somewhere else, so they let me stay there for the summer. And, you know, I started smoking and drinking and and writing a lot of Charles Bukowski really bad literature until I was like, yeah, you're never going to make money doing this. You actually have to get a job. So I was kind of into it all the way along. And then, you know, when I left the law, I started taking classes at UCI Extension at night. My husband would watch the baby and I would go take a memoir class or a writing class. And I did about three or four of those before I met Barbara, who is the main host of Writers on Writing. Hang on for just a second in case we had anybody join us after the show started. Let me refresh our audience. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is KUCI Public Affairs host Marie Stone. She's the co-host of the KUCI show Writers on Writing, 
which broadcasts every Wednesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. And so far, we've been exploring Marie's life and how she got into radio, and that's what we're just starting off on. So, Marie, you said you took some classes with Barbara. Tell a little bit of who Barbara is and, and go from there. Yeah, sure. So Barbara DeMarco Barrett, she is the main host of Writers on Writing, and I think she founded the show, it was in the late 90s, I want to say 97 or 98, she founded Writers on Writing at KCI, and she had been in the adult extension class as a professor at UCI for years. I know a lot of people who met her through that program, teaching a class on them, I think it was kind of on the memoir and kind of, you know, just opening up your own writing and creative process. That's how I met her. And I I met her in 2003 in that class. And then I joined her. She had a private writer's workshop running out of her house, and she invited me to join that, which I did. And then in 2007, she'd been doing the show by then for 10 years. And it's a lot of work. You know, I mean, the show is every week. We had for a long time two authors on each week. So it's two books to read and prep for. And yeah. uh, it was a lot of work. So she at that point said, you know, have you ever thought about doing radio? The answer was no. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was looking for something else to do. So I said, well, I'll tr- you know, I'll try it. So I took the radio station class. Yeah. And joined her. Um, I think my first show was January of 2008 officially. But, you know, I did the show alongside her quite a bit in 2007. So Yeah, so that's how it all got started. Yeah. Wow. So do you consider yourself well-read? I mean, are you constantly reading things? You know, that's a funny question because I read a lot, but I, Mm -hmm. it's funny because I kind of feel, but it would be false to say that I'm well-read because I don't have a degree in English. I only took one literature class in college. So I've just got all these huge gaps of classic literature in my repertoire, you know, and I, and I keep meaning to sit down and read some of the classic literary texts that every English major should have read, but I kind of don't have time. So (laughs) I'm doing it a little piecemeal. I feel false in saying that I'm well read, although I read a lot, you know, I mean, I certainly am. Yeah. Contemporary fiction, I'm pretty well read. But uh, classic literature, you know, there's some really embarrassing gaps in my my knowledge. So, Well, let's just put it this way. You read a heck of a lot more than me. And uh, anybody that's reading a lot, I consider well-read. So uh, I'm going to give you a badge on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just to kind of bring us into current events, did you catch the inaugural poet, 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, the poet? Was that Wasn't something that or what? Wasn't that I totally amazing? agree. It's so interesting because so in my Facebook community, I'm friends. I put friends in quotes. I'm friends with, you know, mostly writers and poets and people in the writing industry because I use Facebook for that most of all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of debate about her and her poetry amongst the poets. And, and a lot of people were being very critical of her. And, you know, I think the spoken word poetry is a pretty new form and the classic poets, you know, poets and writers are very uppity about their their form. So there was this great debate about Amanda Gorman going on for, you know, I mean, it's kind of still going on 
but I thought she was extraordinary and just hit the right note for what the country needs. You know, I just thought she was brilliant. So hats uh, off to her. Uh, and uh, 22, I, I mean. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Um, there's a little bit of a of a hobnobbery about spoken poetry versus written poetry. Is Is that what you're saying? It felt like that. Mm. I'm not immersed too much in the poetry world, but mm. yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like there was a little snobbery, I guess, around. I, I, I'm sure it's a fair amount of jealousy. I mean, you know, these poets have probably been in it for six decades, and here comes a 22-year-old and shows them right. up, you know? <laughs> right. Well, she, she really was spellbinding, and it, it was a bit of, uh, I mean, the, the message, I think you're right on, it, it was the with the perfect message for the time. Oh, yeah, so, perfect time. Yeah, and since we're talking about something as poetry, rhyming, da-da-da, I have always had, uh, I, I think the word prose is a mystery, and I think most people, and, you know, I have an acting background. I've, I've heard the definition, but then it kind of quickly goes out the other ear. And since I knew I was going to be talking to you, you know, I better look, out, look up prose because, you know, I'm going to be talking to you today. And um, so I look it up and it's like prose, basically, because it sounds so poetry-ish. It sounds so beautiful. It sounds so like it's a big, high big deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly, highbrow. And then when you look up the definition, which I think maybe a lot of people out there in, in, on the radio will say, well, yeah, that's what I thought too. It's like none of that. It's actually just regular talk it's regular tell, writing and the reason, yeah the reason yeah the reason i bring it up is like am i getting it right it's a short it's right. a short story it's, it's a it's a newspaper article it's people just talking but really yes that's, i don't know if it's, it's people so, just talking because that's more conversation but yes if you write down what people say it's now prose and put little quotations around it put little grammar into it it's now prose yeah yeah i mean i think prose is, is just in contrast to verse right as, as opposed to writing yeah. in verse, you would write in sentences with you know normal grammatical construction as opposed to it, poetic style. right yeah it's so funny yeah. how that, that you, most of the time words kind of sound like what they you know they mean and da, 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 but i would think prose is kind of the exact opposite <laughs> that's my my, <laughs> my, so my, nice, my, yeah. le my lesson for the day <laughs> So um, we can all do it. Yeah, we can all do it. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> well, how about you know, just in terms of do you have a Sergeant Pepper favorite book? You know, is there something that has just, you know, uh, touched you so deeply that like uh, that's that's the book I've read several times or I don't know. Does it is there anything mm. in, in your that has grabbed you like that, or does it change over time? Mm, yeah, I think it does change over time. That's like asking, you know, a mother her favorite child because it's, uh, right, it's a good question. Right, right, I do believe the right book comes along at the right time, and there are books that I so remember loving. I remember in college discovering Alice Walker and The Temporal of My Familiar and just not having been familiar with black writers and the black experience then, you know, I'd just grown up in this very white, waspy right. place. And it was right. so revolutionary to me at the time. And I, I, you know, in my mind, I built that book up. It is a tremendous book. It's an amazing book. But What's it called again? The Temple of My Familiar, which I just thought was, was 
brilliant then, and, that, and I think it's brilliant now, but it, it wouldn't touch me the same way now I think that it did when I was, you know, 19. And that's um, by Alice Walker? That's by Alice Walker. I mean, if you were going to do black writers, I certainly would go to Toni Morrison now before I'd go to Alice Walker. But, um, mm. or, you know, there's a, there's a zillion amazing black writers, Alice Walker among yeah. them. But I remember just being kind of thrown off my game by that book because it was so the ideas were so new to me the landscape was so new to me everything just yeah. felt so eye-opening to you know my white experience so th- that kind of introduced me to what literature could do and you know the possibilities and the transportative places that it could take you and mm-hmm. gosh since then I mean there's so many there's a book that I felt didn't get it got a lot of acclaim last year, but I still feel like it didn't get enough acclaim, which was a paragon by Colin McCann. And it told the story of a Palestinian man and an Israeli man who both lost their young daughters. They died separately, but I think they were both young teenage girls. And through their grieving of their daughters, this Palestinian and Israeli man, formed this foundation and just became an enormous source of comfort to each other. And the way Colin McCann told the story, which is in a thousand and one parts to kind of mirror the Arabian nights. And he pulled Mm -hmm. in all of this research about birds and Philippe Petit, the man who walked the world trade center, the tightrope between the world trade center. He'd bring in all of these elements from all over the place to, to bring depth, these two men's story and it was phenomenal i've never seen anything like it so wow it did get a lot of acclaim i feel like it didn't get enough it came out right as the pandemic was descending on us gosh it was just amazing and they had started going on tour together with him you know but then the pandemic hit so but the three of them were touring together oh the author and the two fathers the author you're right right wow Wow. And I thought, God, what a way for literature to affect change, you know, to just right, right, bring these men into your living room and share their experience of losing their daughters. And, you know, it was just phenomenal, I right. thought. Yeah. Well, Marie, it's so great to have you. I am not well read. Um, my wife is. I'm the kind that I lay down in bed. And, and if I try to read, I'll get through two sentences and then I'm out. I'm asleep. And But it's something yeah, like it. that when you. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you explain some of these books and you're like, oh wow, yeah, I I gotta read that. So let me just refresh our listeners. If you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is Marie Stone, who is the co-host of the KUCI Interview Show, Writers on Writing. It airs every Wednesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. and explores all things authors, editors, and agents. Wow. So you've been interviewing for 13-plus years now. Are there any memorable interviews that you can share with us? I know you it's like comparing oh, yeah. kids, but anything come to mind? <laughs> so many, yeah. I remember early on there was a woman named Lucinda Franks who I think was primarily a journalist. And her dad had been in World War II. He'd been a spy in World War II. And now he had Alzheimer's. And she was trying to extract 
his memories that he had been incredibly protective of for years, I mean, since the war. And um, she wanted those memories before he died. And she really, you know, kind of using her journalistic techniques kind of went after him, you know, to get these, these memories from him that he clearly was, was very reluctant to tell. One of them being that he, as a, as a spy for the CIA, was forced to execute his best friend. So they went on a walk, and he was charged with doing this, and he did it. And, you know, as you might imagine, never wanted to speak about it again. And through the course of what sounded like some aggressive interviewing, you know, she, she got this story out of him. And we just had this really interesting conversation about what is owed to us as children and what is private as an adult and what, and using your journalistic techniques against a family member and the ethics of that. It was just a really fascinating conversation. And the downside of KUCI, which I love, I love the station. The equipment isn't always up to the task, so the the recording was lost <laughs> in oh, the ether no. of the internet. So oh, I, no. was, the conversation is only in my memory, which is kind of a beautiful thing, I think. Yeah. You know, that it is kind of frozen in amber there, but you can't go back and listen to it. She was one that it just the conversation took a turn that I wasn't expecting, and those are kind of my favorite moments in interviews when Right. I've done all my research and I've, you know, I'm all ready and I think I know where the conversation's going to go and I think I'm controlling it. And then something upends it and I'm like, what? You know, what are we talking about now? This is so far off of what I was expecting and it's so fun and so interesting. So that was one that really stayed with me. And another one was Geraldine Brooks, who uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. I think she won the Pulitzer for Year of Wonders. She she became a novelist, but she'd been a foreign correspondent before that. She was a foreign correspondent for the the Wall Street Journal for years, and she was married to Tony Horowitz, who sadly just passed away suddenly in 2019. And I think he was a correspondent for the New York Times. Anyway, they um they they were a Jewish couple. And she was charged by the Wall Street Journal to go to um, Palestine and drive her car up and down the Gaza Strip until somebody threw a rock at her, which was assured to happen. And then she was going to chase this kid down and get his story. So that was that was the setup. So she drives her car up and down the Gaza Strip and a kid throws a rock at her and she chases him down. And he's a 14-year-old, 15-year-old boy. And he says, you know, I've always wanted to be a doctor, but this is where I was born. This is my life. I was made to throw rocks at Israelis. So, you know, there's no kind of hope for me. So she writes up the story, files it with the Wall Street Journal. A doctor in Denver, some someplace in the Midwest, reads this story and says, if you find that kid, I'll pay for him to go to medical school. I'll fetch him out of Palestine, and I will put him through college and put him through medical school. So she flies back to Palestine. She finds this kid. He's now in jail, um, and he's serving kind of a long sentence. 
and he says, I'm really serious about this. I, I, this is what I want. I will contact you when I get out of here. And, um, he does. And the, 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 um, doctor had just been in a plane crash and had just been killed. So Geraldine Brooks and her husband, Tony Horowitz, two Jewish writers, started this foundation for Palestinian youth to put them through. I feel like I keep coming back to Palestine. (laughs) The Palestinian youth to put them through uh, students through school. And so it was just such a moving story. It had nothing to do with the novel that she came on to talk about, as I recall. (laughs) It was was just fascinating and, and moving. And so that was another one that kind of stayed with me because it went in a direction I wasn't expecting. And Wally Lamb, he was another one. Wally Lamb is a pretty well-known novelist. A lot of his novels are Oprah Book Club books, and they've made it to TV shows and whatnot, TV movies. Um, But he did a lot of work in women's prisons and helped the women in the York prison, which is somewhere in the Northeast, put together a book because he went in there and led these writing classes. And these women published a book. And then the prison system became very annoyed that they had published this book and began charging them rent for their cells (laughs) because they said, you know, you shouldn't be profiting from your crime. They weren't profiting from their crime because they weren't writing about their crimes. They were just writing about their lives. And by the way, a book deal does not pay. It pays pennies, but these women were being charged like a hundred grand or something. They were being charged like hotel prices for their cells. And Wally Lamb broke this story to 60 Minutes, who went in and investigated. And I think the warden of the prison ended up going to jail for other crimes. And that was another one that was wholly unexpected and just kind of a crazy story that you can find on 60 Minutes. Yeah. So just a handful of interesting people living interesting lives that, you know, come on to talk about them and you know it's it's always so much fun to to hear their stories right how about do you have a favorite humorous book or humorous author that anything come to mind he's never been on the show but david sedaris is absolutely Uh, my favorite humor writer satirist and my wife my wife too (laughs) whenever he comes to town which is i mean back in pre-pandemic days was kind of wow, often. Every, I mean, he, he, every he came year, to the Barclays. Yeah. yeah, he came to the Barclays. Yeah. I never missed a David Sedera evening because he's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever try to get him on the show? I've never tried to have him on the show, and I'm not sure why. Mm-hmm. I should try to have him on the show because he's – I did sign up for those master classes. He teaches a master's class on writing, and he's just At so, UCI, so or funny. is it an online thing? Yeah, it's just an online thing. It's just an mm-hmm. online thing. But he's he's very funny. In fact, the last time we went, or maybe the time before that, my daughter was she's at one of those horrible ages, you know, thirteen or fourteen. And we went up to get our book signed and she you know, she handed her book and he said, How old are you? And she's like, Oh, you know, I'm I'm thirteen. He's like, Oh my God, that's just the worst age. So he pulls out this tote bag and he's flipping through this tote bag and he pulls out this hotel shampoo bottle and he's like, here, just take this, you know, you just take this. It'll help you feel better. It came from the montage. You know, it's very nice shampoo. (laughs) And he handed her this little business card that just said, stop talking. And he's like, just hand this to people. When people try to talk to you, just say, stop talking. (laughs) That was David Sedaris. 
Yeah, yeah. Just That's so funny. funny. Yeah, I haven't done well, a lot of humorous on the show. So I gotta I, mm-hmm. I'm gonna work on that now, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so many things are often so serious and that it's the lighter moments that become memorable. You know, in terms of interviewing, do you feel like I mean you've interviewed for a long time. Do you have a a kind of a set outline or do you have opening questions? Is it different every week? Certainly once you start talking it becomes different, but how do you prepare? You know, do you have a set outline? Yeah, good question. It does differ every week. So the, I should say the bent of our show, it's not like bookworm and it's not like fresh air. It's not really about the content of the book, even though everything I've talked about <laughs> on our yeah. interview today sounds like it's about the content of the book. But really, our listening audience are typically writers. And so we kind of build the show as an, a free MFA program for listeners. And so what our focus really is supposed to be, and sometimes I get carried away and don't do it as well as I should, is on craft questions and process questions and the business of writing questions. So what we really are trying to extract from the writers, their writerly wisdom on craft and process. So a lot of those questions can get routine. And so I try to hear it in ways that we're not asking the same questions every week because it would be so easy to do that. A fair number of these authors are pretty well known. So they have a ton of interviews already out there. I watch a lot of those. Of course, I read their book. And then lately, I've really tried to find what is very unique and strong about their individual writing and push in on what they do well, whether it's dialogue or structure or plot or whatever it might be, and, you know, try and interrogate them on how they do it so well. And surprisingly, you'd think all of the answers would eventually kind of coagulate around the same stuff. But I'm surprised, and I continue to be surprised 13 years into it, how that's not the case, how they so often come up with something I never would have expected or a new way of looking at something. George Saunders was just on the show this past week. And his way of reading and writing is so wholly different than anything I have come across before that I learned so much after 13 years of kind of studying this. I learned so much from him. So, yeah, I try and keep the conversations, you know, like ours today. I try to keep it really organic and free-flowing. And then within that, I try to let them guide it and match my tone to their tone and they always surprise me they always manage to which is good i understand that you uh, also do profiles of people for local journals are you still involved with that yeah you know that kind of got put on the back shelf since the pandemic started but i'd like to go back to that Laguna, so I live in Laguna Beach, and it's just full of really quirky, weird characters. I don't know what it is about Laguna that attracts a certain kind of personality, but it really attracts creative, innovative, kind of off the wall, a little bit, you know, (laughs) crazy people. So it was kind of a bottomless well of interesting people to profile and they were assigned to me by and large. I didn't seek them out, but they all, there were a a swath of 
of veterans from various wars, World War II and the Korean War, we were trying to kind of capture before we mm. don't have their stories anymore. And then, you know, Bill Gross, who is our local billionaire, <laughs> the billionaire Bond King, who's pretty quirky. And our Laguna has a town greeter, who's this homeless party crasher. He's kind of famous for crashing celebrity parties, the Oscars, the Grammys. He kind of run up on stage with these. Anyway, he's just a, a lot of color, I would say. So I did a profile on him. Yeah, so... It's, however I can get somebody's story, I just love getting people's stories. Gotcha. It's a good gotcha. gig. In terms of your writing, do you have something that you're most proud of? Is it like yeah, that? Yeah, maybe, yeah. You know, I um, I do mostly short fiction, and for a while there I was, I was sending it out at a pretty good clip and getting some success in literary journals. And I need to do more of that, you know, since um, since the pandemic began, I've only really had one thing published. And so I need to get back on that. When I'm disciplined about it and I give myself deadlines, my good and bad of, of being me is that I'm very deadline oriented. So the radio show has provided such great structure. I mean, it's going to go on whether I'm ready for it to or not, you know, so... So it's a done deal and I better get prepared and I know exactly when it's going to happen. And so writing isn't like that. You know, writing, no one is sitting around waiting for you to publish a piece of fiction. I mean, the world just could care less. And so Mm -hmm. you have to be very purposeful and driven about it or it just will never happen. Barbara, thank God, just started this writer's boot camp. It's every morning we meet on Zoom and we just have to work for two hours. We turn our cameras off and turn everything off, but we're held accountable to sit at the desk for two hours. And that's invaluable. I mean, I, I will do it. If I'm told to do it, I will do it, which is the same reason I have a trainer to help me work out because I will not work out if I do not have a trainer, but I will if I do. I need the discipline and I need the deadline. So mm. hopefully the next time we talk, I'll have a better answer of being <laughs> proud of something. <laughs> Let me just do a final audience update. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer. My special guest today is my colleague here at KUCI Public Affairs host, Marie Stone, who co-hosts the weekly interview show, Writers on Writing, a show that explores all things literary. Have you interviewed an author that has had you know, decades of obscurity that all of a sudden Well, for lack of a better word, it hits it big. All of a sudden, something break out. Anybody come to mind and what changed? When you look at their earlier work, it's like it was all there. It just wasn't recognized or is it just different with every author? Yeah, you know, I think that's a more common story than people know because whenever you ask a writer, you know, everybody looks like a breakout the first time and you have no idea that they have 10 or 20 years of work hidden in their desk. Mm-hmm. I think that's the more common story than the the 25-year-old or 22-year-old Amanda Gorman sensation right out of the box. I mean, those mm-hmm. people exist, but it, but it is rare. It's funny you should say that because I mentioned George Saunders was just on the show and he was talking about that very issue that he had been writing for a long time kind of in obscurity and 
he was afraid of his own voice. He's very funny and he's very witty, but he never thought that was literary. So he kept it out of his work. And then he just started playing around one day and, and the voice started working. And so the, all the years of fiction that didn't work suddenly came to life when he let himself be himself and then had a ton of success. So He's one example. Carolyn Levitt is another example. She's a writer um, who had published nine novels before uh, the ninth one really kind of took off and she became more of a, a known entity in the literary world. And in fact, I think her publisher was going to drop her because they were getting frustrated that, you know, her mm. her stuff wasn't taking off. Mm. And she finally just got the confidence and the, I think, in fact, after writing nine novels, she came across John Truby's The Anatomy of a Story, and she taught herself how to put a novel together. And amazing, you could write nine novels and get them published and not really understand the engine and mechanics of what makes a novel work, but she didn't. <laughs> so mm. once she had that discovery, her novels really started taking off. I'm sure there's more. I mean, I'm I'm sure that, you know, a lot of these writers, I'm surprised when I see their book is so huge and I think this must be your first book because I've never heard of you before. And they'll have, you know, four or five books or published or not. But that that whole thing about 10,000 hours to, to work on your craft, I think it's true. You just have to do it in order to learn how to do it. And so it's pretty rare to have a, a book out of the gate that, is successful by accident, you know. I think these guys have been at it for a very long time, typically. And you interview literary agents also? You know, I don't do as much of that as Barbara. I have. Mm. Barbara's mm. kind of more interested in the I, – I really like the synergy between Barbara and I because our sensibility is is pretty similar. So the voice and style of the show, I think, is pretty similar. But our interests are divergent enough that it really works well. So we can cover kind of a broad swath of stuff and not really step on each other's toes very much. So she is much more interested in, in kind of the businessy stuff and agents and the mechanics of getting published and of finding agents and editors and publishers for your books. And I'm kind of the, I don't know, I'm just kind of more of the art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, I do more like I'm really into short story collections and, and short story writers. And she, you know, is a bit more mystery, memoir. So, yeah, even across literary fiction, our tastes, they definitely converge here and there. But, you mm -hmm. know, like I say, they're different enough that it keeps the show pretty well balanced, I think. So it's mm -hmm. a good synergy. In terms of short stories, is it magazines? Is that where you find short stories the most? Where do you find the short stories that you want to read or want to discover? Yeah, you know, the short story has gone through kind of a renaissance. When I started mm -hmm. doing the show 13 years ago, the short story was really kind of the, I always called it the ugly stepchild of the novel, that they were hard to get published. Publishers weren't really that interested in them. I think readers typically aren't as into short stories because they're not as immersive. Their endings are often open-ended and therefore can be construed as unsatisfying if you're not into mm -hmm. having all of your 
I's dotted and T's crossed. So Mm -hmm. I think typically short story collections are written for other writers as opposed to written for readers. That's a total overgeneralization. But in the last, I would say, seven to ten years, the short story has really taken off. So there's a lot of collections out published mm-hmm. now alongside big novels. So, yeah, so they, they, haven't, they haven't been very hard to find. And a couple of them have won the Pulitzer Prize. Jean-Paul Lampiri's Purportive Maladies, I think, won the Pulitzer. I think mm-hmm. there might have been one or two others that also did really well. And they could just kind of hit the mainstream in a way that they'd They'd been kind of quiet for, you know, they used to be huge in the 50s and 60s. You know, you'd see Mm. Playboy magazine or a lot of these publications would always have really nice literary fiction, really nice literary stories. And then they they just kind of disappeared. But, yeah, they've really had a nice comeback. So Mm. I love them. I just think they're fun. And is, is there a magazine that you kind of identify as, like, you know, having outstanding short stories well the new yorker certainly published mm-hmm. I mean, you know that's that's kind of the pinnacle mainstream magazine that publishes you know every mm. week they publish a, a very nice short story if listeners are into short stories there's this great publication called one story and they put out a little it's just like this little pamphlet and it's just one story and it's meant to just you can kind of stick it in your purse or your pocket you can read it on the subway if you live in new york which is where they are and they're very accessible and small. <laughs> so mm-hmm. They're meant to be read on a subway ride to work. Not that anybody has ever been on a subway in the past year, but if they are, they're ever mm-hmm. in a subway again. Mm-hmm. So those are cool. And then, you know, the, the heavy hitting literary journal journals for people that are kind of into this stuff, you know, the Missouri Review or Plowshares or but there's a ton of dense, difficult to get published in literary journals that put out just tremendous wonderful short stories but yeah mainstream i'd say you know the new yorker is probably the most common place you'd find the short story form you know in everyday magazine life and finally marie just as we getting towards the end of our conversation i always like to ask my guests you know have they had any adversity in their life that they you know, felt like it was a difficult time that I had to grind through or make it through. Does does anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, my the year my parents split, I was mm. in high school, newly in high school. It was one of those classic times when life hits you, it just keeps hitting you and hitting you and hitting you. And uh, so our house had burned that year, and my parents split, and my grandfather had, you know, a medical event, and the dog died. You know, it was just like one of those years that everything goes wrong. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it it was hard to, you know, it took a couple of years, and, and I was 14, you know, it's just the worst, as David right. Sedaris says, right, just the worst age. I just needed a bottle mm-hmm. of shampoo from the montage, I guess, when I would <laughs> But, you know, looking back on that year, which is now... 35 years ago, you know what you're made of, you know how bad it can get. And you know, at that point, I didn't know things got better. You know, I hadn't been through sort of a classic cycle of pain that everybody has to go through. So I didn't know there was another side. I just thought this, this is how bad it's going to be forever. And so, you know, I think those times are important. I mean, it's actually even sustained me this past year of the pandemic, but you know, 
you know, this is temporary. I mean, it's a longer temporary than we anticipated it would be, but it is temporary and there is going to be another side to it. And, you know, nothing, nothing stays the same forever, uh, good or bad, sadly. And so I've thought back on that year quite a bit and what it did for me and, and uh, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, it was horrible to live through it, but I wouldn't trade it, which is probably the answer you get a lot <laughs> to that question. <laughs> well, Marie, thank you so much. We've talked for quite a while about finally doing an interview. I'm, I'm so glad you joined us today. Thank you. Me too. Thank you so much, Kevin. This was so much fun. So much fun to be on the other right. side of, of the microphone, as I say. <laughs> I wish I could say I'll see you at the station soon, but hopefully no, sooner than later. I know, right? Right. That was so much fun. Thank you so much. I'm kind of I'm flattered and red faced. So thank you. <laughs> thank you again to KUCI Public Affairs host Marie Stone for walking us through her life, her radio work, and the amazing world of literature. It's an amazing world, and I always love being re-exposed to it and being reinvigorated to read more. I will say Marie's description of Colin McCann's book, A Paragon, caught my interest and I just ordered it. Don't forget, Marie co-hosts the KUCI Writers on Writing show every Wednesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. If you're interested in more information about her show or other Marie Stone activities, her website can be found at www.mariestone.com. That's Marie with two R's, www.mariestone.com. She can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. And as always, a big thank you to my piano-playing blues friend, Fred Kaplan, for all my show theme music. And now turning the page, coming up right after this show at 5 p.m., KUCI presents Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the weekly interview program which looks at business problems and works to find solutions with experienced leaders from the community. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anchors. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can reach me at kboss at KUCI.org. You can also access my UCI Conversations podcast library 24-7 at www.bostonmeyer.com. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, encouraging you to keep socially distancing and keep wearing those masks. In fact, double those masks. Let's finish strong in our fight against COVID. We are all in this together, and we're going to win. Have a great evening. Happy trails. So long, everybody.